Well, good morning to all of you. You know, there's a lot of things you could have chosen to do on this day, and it is good that you have chosen to be in the house of the Lord. If you are a visitor, um, I am Pastor Tim. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace Community, and Pastor John has been down in Mexico with our um, men's missions team all week, and so he will be back to preach next week. If you came to hear him preach, I still hope that the Lord will bless you through the teaching of this day, but if you'd like to hear him, you can come back next week. The greatest sermon ever preached, I've said it every time I've taught in the particular series that I'm in, it's a reference to the Sermon on the Mount that was preached by our Lord, which is recorded in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. This morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I would encourage you to turn there, and we'll read that in a moment. Because I have been periodically teaching, I know it might seem a bit repetitious to some of you that have been here each time I've preached on this, but I, it is very important for us to keep the overall context of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 as I preach through little bits and pieces of it. It's very important to realize that that's part of, a, of something greater, and so I, I always want to make sure you grasp the context of the entire message. So I want to walk you through that again for just a moment, maybe in a little bit different way. One guy wrote this, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. The Sermon on the Mount was preached. It's important for you to understand the Sermon on the Mount was preached by our Lord before He died on the cross for our sins. This sermon was meant to drive people to the cross. It exposes what that quote exposes, and that is that mankind, whether a good man or a bad man, and that would be how we would classify people, but all people are spiritually bankrupt. They are lost in their sins. All of mankind needs a Savior. The sermon teaches the truth that would later be penned in the book of Romans, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This sermon refutes one of the common answers or maybe excuses of mankind when they are confronted with the question of what will happen to them when they die. The excuse is this, I've led a pretty good life. I'm a good person. The sermon teaches what Jeremiah taught in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so we need a Savior, and that's the point of this, this message that, he, that Jesus spoke. Once a person gives their life to the Lord, we are called to live a certain way, and the Sermon on the Mount also exposes the heart of the believer. It is why the sermon begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We as Christians must understand that we still need the Lord because we still battle against the sin nature. It defines the heart of a believer. When we are exposed to these great teachings of the Lord, we become aware of the fact that we can never completely meet the standards of the sermon. Who among us has never struggled with things like anger and lust and lying and bitterness and relational issues. 
But once we give our lives to Christ, we are called to live a certain way as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, to me, that just seems like an incredible oxymoron. We can't keep the message. We can't keep what he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, yet we are called to keep it. What do you do with that? R. Kent Hughes, a pastor that I really respect, says this, We should notice that the Sermon on the Mount not only exposes the believer's heart, but defines it. Which, by the way, I hope you're catching, this sermon is written to us as believers. None of us completely meet the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, but at the same time, if we are true believers, something of the character of the kingdom, something of each of the Beatitudes will be authentically present in our lives. Spiritual poverty, humility, spiritual thirst, mercy, peacemaking. Along with this, there will be the presence of the unsurpassing, of the surpassing righteousness of Christ. We may fall at times, but we will practice righteousness. Anger, adulterous thoughts, insincere talk, retaliation will progressively vanish from our lives. Agape love will become characteristic of us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the key to keeping the sermon, by the way. You cannot do it without the Holy Spirit in your life. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and His Word, including the explicit teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, we will practice righteousness. And this sets up the teaching of this day as found in Matthew 6. As one grows in their faith, which is what the sermon teaches, and begins to do good works of righteousness, they, we, become at risk. Today we are going to be made aware of a red flag. It's a danger that lurks in the back alleys of our heart. It always waits for your guard to be down. So it can jump out from behind the dumpster and attack you. And here's the the thing we need to be so aware of. Once one starts living for the Lord and doing good things for Him, out of the blue, out of the blue, the commendation from man comes and a shift happens. We stop doing things for the praise of the Lord and we start doing things for the praise of man. The Sermon on the Mount always brings us back to the motives of the heart. What we do should always be rooted in, our, in the Lordship of Christ. The question should always be before us, do we want God to see or do we want man to see? Now Matthew chapter 6 begins with this warning on righteous living that can come. It deals with hypocrisy that can creep into what the sermon calls acts of righteousness. And then through the, 18, the next 18 verses, Jesus gives three examples of how this happens. Today, we are just going to look at the first example, and that is in relation to the act of giving. After that, Jesus talks about prayer and then about fasting. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. 
If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The thing I want to help us to see here today, maybe the main point of this particular text, is that right acts of righteousness are the secret to touching the Lord. Right acts of righteousness. Motives matter to Jesus. Let's walk through it. Here's the warning. Matthew 6.1 says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, at first glance, when, when that is read, if you pay attention to the entire sermon, you might think that Jesus is contradicting Himself. It's very important to see this. Matthew 5.16, just, just back a little ways um, prior to when Jesus says this, He also says this, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, that almost seems like a contradiction. Because in both instances, the passage I just read and the one we're looking at this morning, Jesus speaks of doing good works before men. And in both instances, Jesus speaks of the good works being seen by those men. But in one case, He commands us to do good works before men, and in the other, He condemns those good works before men. What does one do with this? This is why it's so very, very important to pay attention to what He is trying to teach. Letting your light shine has to do with living your life in such a way so that people will see the Lord through you. And He commands us to do that. Just last week, we had our celebration service, and some, peop- some folks were baptized. Baptism is symbolic. When people are baptized, they are making a public profession of their faith. And what they are saying by that to all who are watching, either in the public realm or the personal realm or the spiritual realm, They are saying, I am going to live my life for the Lord because the Lord is the Lord of my life, no matter what should come my way. And we are called to do that. And if men don't see that, how do they ever know that it's the Lord working through us? So it goes something like this. You are in a public setting and something is going on that you are either uncomfortable with or maybe you think is wrong. You know, a group, you're in a group of people and they're doing something and the group wants you to do that with them and you choose not to because of your relationship with the Lord. And when they ask you, why don't, won't you, do, why don't you do this? And it doesn't work just like that. I'm sure you have ideas in your head how this works. 
but there's pressure put on you to do what they do. And you say, you know, I, I just don't want to do that because I love the Lord. I don't know how you would say it. I can't construct it in your mind. But by, doing, by not doing what others do that you either know is wrong or it violates your conscience, you give testimony to the Lord. And Jesus is saying that's good because that gives glory to the Lord. Here when he says, don't do your righteous acts before men, what he's talking about here has more to do with vanity or pride, self-interest, doing things to impress others about who you are. A.B. Bruce sums it up well when he says this, Show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. John Stott says, Why are we to keep our piety secret? It is in order that the glory may be given to God rather than men. Why are we to let our light shine and do good works in the open? It is that men might glorify our Heavenly Father. The difference between these two has to do with who do you want to get the recognition. I do not know why that advanced, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do because I don't want to have to worry about it. I'm going to let you fill in your blanks and your notes, and then I'm going to quit worrying about this thing. Are you guys getting all this? I saw it advance, and I didn't advance it, so... And don't bring your beverages into the worship center. All right, let me talk now. I'm sorry, I don't know why that advanced. It drives me nuts. Sometimes I wish we could just take off the microphones. And Anyways, I'll stop talking. Okay, back to the message. The warning is clear that Jesus is giving us. You don't have to be a trained theologian to catch what our Lord is saying. If you do things for the approval of man you do not have the approval of God. Think about it for a moment. Think of all the wonderful things that you could do. You see a lady on the roadside. She's got a flat tire. You stop and you change the tire for her. Your neighbor has surgery and can't do his yard work. And so you do it for him without being asked until he can do it for himself. A family suffers through the death of a loved one and you take a meal to them and you drop it off and you tell them you love them and you leave so that they can enjoy the meal and not have to entertain you. You read your Bible faithfully every day. You pray without ceasing. You never ever miss church. You serve And you do all kinds of nice things. What this passage teaches us, if you do it for the wrong reasons, it doesn't mean they're not good things. But if you do it for the wrong reasons or with the wrong motive, the Scripture is clear. You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This does not mean, by the way, that the deed is not good. What it means is that the good deed is rejected by God. 
I don't know about you, but that really kind of freaks me out a little bit. The point is that the good thing is done for the wrong reason. It's not for the glory of God. It's for the glory of the person who does the deed. And we as people don't ever know what the motive of the heart is. Only the Lord does, and maybe that person. And this is why we're encouraged to keep an eye out. And Jesus is aware that His people can fall into this trap. So He gives three examples of how to keep one's motives or heart in the correct place. And as I said, His first example is giving. So let's talk about giving for just a moment. And this is in your notes. Generous giving touches the heart of our Lord. After saying, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He goes on to say, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue or on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now let me say something here that could be missed. Jesus assumes something in this statement. He assumes that His disciples give. That is an assumption. That is is something that comes from the heart of a believer. They will give. And we must remember, you notice He says, so when you give to the needy. He doesn't say if you give. It's an assumption that's made there. 2 Corinthians 9.6 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So he expects his people to give, but he expects them to give conspicuously. And in these passages, I really think he gives us a way not to give and a way to give. How, do we, how are we not to give? Don't give for the praise of man. So when you give to the needy, he says, do not announce it with trumpets. I spend a lot of time, you know, there's a lot of thing, a lot of study that a pastor does that never even makes it to the pulpit. And I spend a lot of time studying this idea of what does he mean when he says don't announce it with trumpets? Because I wanted to understand if there was some kind of cultural illustration there. And I found out that there's different, depending on who you read, there's different ideas of it. Some commentators made reference to the fact that a horn was blown to call people to the temple to give to a need. They'd blow the horn and everybody knew, go to the temple and give. There was something to give to. And it was pointed out that that's a really great way for someone who wants everybody to know that they're a giver. You know, the horn blows and, you know, they take off to the temple and, you know, make a show of it, if you will. It's like, Hey, big giver on the way to the temple, here I am. You know, that kind of thing. Um, There was a reference made to the blowing of the horn that would call people to the public fast. And of course, giving would happen there. And then some commentators, I think, picked up on what I think we, how we would all take it. And actually, I think is the point of it all. My point is, after all the study, I think this is what it means. Don't blow your own horn. <laughs> it just cracks me up how you look for these things and you find out it 
really all means the same thing. One commentator said this idea of not blowing your own horn comes from the early days of literature. Well, whatever it is, I'm telling you, what he's saying is don't blow your own horn. In other words, when you give, don't announce it to everybody. It's clear. Don't bring attention to yourself when you're doing a good act. Everybody made a comment that this was called the sin of ostentation. I must admit, I guess it's from being from Tulare. I didn't really know what that meant. Ostentatious? We don't even use words like that in my day, you know, neck of the woods. So I looked it up. I mean, I kind of knew what it was, but I wanted to make sure I knew what it was. Ostentatious is being showy or flamboyant, grandiose. In other words, making it, letting everybody know, hey, I gave today. What a great Christian I am, if you were to put it in a modern-day context. And see, what that does is that robs the glory from God, and He's the one that deserves the glory. Years ago... You know, when we built, when we, when we erected this temporary worship center, which is very nice, by the way, you know, we, we needed, our church has always been a church that has tried to have the money before they do something. You know, they wanted to have the money to, to build. We've tried not to take out loans and things like that. Not that that's necessarily wrong, but that's been the general principle that has guided this church as long as I've been here. So we went in when we want, when we knew we needed to build this place. We went into a, the process of raising money, and I remember that we needed something like $850,000. I don't know if that's accurate, but, but we needed that to do this, to do some parking lot work, to do some remodeling of the, the, the other building across the way. And by the way, if you were here, I don't even remember who made this idea. I don't remember. I have no names in my head. Probably these folks aren't here anymore because it was so long ago. But basically, there was this idea that was that was was given that was, you know, and it's kind of a business model. It's like let's get the top twenty-five givers of the church and bring them together for a dinner, and then let's just share the vision of what we want to do. And I'm thankful that our leaders chose not to do that in a very gracious way. Because what they said was, you know, no, that brings too much attention to these folks. And I remember when it was, when it was first, when that idea was posed, I remember thinking, what if I'm number 26? You know? And what does it do to the folks that, that you know, you, we're not going to, you know, they, weren't, they had no intention of telling what these people gave. I wouldn't even know who the people were, because in our church, we don't know who gives what. And... But remember thinking that that still somehow targets those folks. And what about the person that doesn't have the means to be one of the top 25 givers, but they still give faithfully? You see what I mean? So we chose not to do that, which I was thankful. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Don't bring attention to yourself in your giving. Don't rob that from God. And then he says, he says, um, don't announce it with trumpets, And don't give like the hypocrites give. When you give, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. Now, clearly, if you study the Scriptures, 
When Jesus used the word hypocrites, it's a reference to the Pharisees, clearly. Matthew 23, 23 to 28, I'm not going to read it all, I'll just read you portions of it. Jesus says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy.'" You have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup. See, they, they, it, it had, everything was about the inside, I mean the outside. You, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. goes on to say, it ends by saying, in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And that's what the Lord's trying to get across to us. See, the Pharisees were pious. They were self-righteous. They were ostentatious. They pretended to be something they weren't. They didn't give to further the kingdom of God. They gave to get something in return. They wanted men to tell them how good they were. That's what they were after. And he uses the word hypocrite because the word hypocrite is a reference to an actor who assumes a role. It's a stage player. Now, if you are an actor, I guess I think I need to say this. If you are an actor involved in the arts. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be an actor. Because everyone, when an actor, when someone is acting in a part, everyone knows they are playing a part. That's not who they are. But he's using this illustration to say that hypocrites, these hypocrites, are actors who are actually trying to make people believe that they are who they are say they are. In other words, they're playing a part, but they're trying to get everybody to think that they're that way. And they're really only trying to get the praise of man. The actor metaphor, by the way, should be kept in mind when you get to the end of the passage. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. Now, try to understand that. When someone plays a part, or maybe you go to a play, or you go to some kind of a musical, or something like that, and when it's over, you know, there's this, this rambunctious applause, and everybody stands up, and the players take a bow, and then they go home, and it's over. That's it. The praise of man is fleeting. This is why, for example, you have some folks in athletics that... You know, they leave the game and they retire, and I think they miss the excitement of it all, so they come out of retirement. I think this is why, I think this is why we have movies like The Expendables. <laughs> These guys are past their time, man, and they don't even look like they used to look. <laughs> and so, but they're, but they're missing the applause of man. They want to be famous. See? And Jesus is saying, listen, that is fleeting. That is going to go away. The applause happens, and you go home, and it's over until the next time. But the applause of God never goes away.
We watched this thing. I probably shouldn't say this, and now that I say that, I <laughs> my wife is looking at me right now. I'm going to look this way. I watched this. <laughs> you know, we watch this thing so you think you can dance. And I just, you know, and it's fun to watch and all of that, but I just think it's interesting that, you know, the judges will make comments about the choreographers. Oh, that was just wonderful. And the choreographer's like... <laughs> Uh, Come on! But we do that with God sometimes. It's like we do things and, oh, it was okay. I, you know, you catching my point? (laughs) I hope you are. (laughs) I'm still afraid to look at my wife. Um, Then Jesus goes on to say how to give. How do we give? We should give only for the glory of the Lord. We should give only to let the Lord get the glory. And he goes on and he says, When you give to the needy, now this is where he tells you how to give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now I think that's fascinating because don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing is usually used as a negative metaphor. It's like a business or a group of folks and Some people in the group don't know what the other ones are doing, and they say, oh, you know, it's a classic example of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. But it's not used as a negative example here. Jesus is using kind of an absurd example to make a point. When I first read it and thought about it, I had in my mind like two hands talking to one another, you know, the left hand and the right hand. And the right hand is going to give, and it's almost like before he gives, he turns to the left hand and says, don't watch, this is not for you. And so the left hand turns away. And I almost saw the right hand giving and the left hand going like this. Nope, turn around. The point being is it's it's an absurd example. It's like, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Don't give and, and announce it to everybody. Just give to the Lord. And he goes on to say, do it secretly. That's the point of it. That's how we give. If one is truly giving to the Lord, he doesn't need the approval of man. He knows that God sees, and that's what he really cares about. The true believer only wants to praise God and to please Him. And this is something we battle against. Let's face it. So what do we do with all of this? What is the bottom line? I don't know if this is the bottom line, but this is what I took out of it. And this isn't in your notes, because I did all this this morning. I had my thoughts were just invaded in the middle of the night, and I hope by the Lord. Citizens of the kingdom of God are generous. That's what it comes down to. They are generous. And I want to say a couple things about generosity. It makes me a little uncomfortable to go away from the text. In, in the teaching of the text, but I think there's some things here that are applicable to the text. So I want to tell you t- a couple of things about generosity. It's not in your notes, so if you want to take notes on that, you can turn your page over. I want you to know that generosity isn't valued by the size of the gift. The size of the gift has nothing to do with generosity. I was reminded of Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place 
where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. I could, can't you almost see them doing it? You know, just throwing in large amounts so everybody can see. I mean, that's the way I envision it. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The world values big. The world values what you can see, but God values what goes on in the heart. You know, our church has never been a church that has been supported by... I'm speaking to you as a congregation member now. I mean, I don't know if I can step away from this, but you know, my wife and I have been in this church in a long time, and I, impre- I, I, I love our church. There's a lot of good churches in town. No disrespect to any other church. But we're here because we really appreciate this church and what the Lord's doing here. That's why we're here. We believe in the vision of this church. And our church has never been a church that's been supported by large donors. That doesn't mean there's never been large gifts given from time to time. But this church, at least from my perspective, has always existed because of the faithful giving of faithful people who just simply love the Lord. And I love that, don't you? People just give out of their heart, and I love that. Second thing I want to tell you about generosity, I think I've already made the point, is generosity is valued because of the heart that's behind the gift. That's what the Lord looks at. Now I'm going to read a passage that I have battled with over the years. And you might think, wow, that doesn't really support this, but I kind of think it does. Generosity is valued because of the heart that's behind the gift. Malachi 3, 8 to 10 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. In my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Will you rob God? I want you to understand that, that stealing means not only taking that which is not yours to take, but it's also keeping back for yourself something that belongs to someone else. And that's what was going on here. All we have comes from the Lord. And the Lord calls us to give back a portion to His church or to the storehouse as it's put here. And God condemns the whole nation in this case because it appears that robbery was a widespread abuse of his generosity. And how can we in America not say we have been generously given to by the Lord? 
compare us to other nations. We have so much. Now, I wasn't, the reason I say I struggle with this, I was never taught to give. I'm being honest with you. I have struggled with giving over the years because that wasn't taught to me. I thought to myself, you know, I worked for this. And then I would hear people talk about giving to the Lord. And I, you know, I would struggle to do that. I wanted to because I wanted to love the Lord. But I, I had that struggle. And I think some of you can, can understand that. But God's people give to God's work. Recently, our church received a large gift. An offering, if you will. And that gift, which was a blessing to our church, by the way, I have no idea where the gift came from or anything like that. It was just someone gave a large gift to the church. And I struggled with it because of how big it was. And I was having a discussion with someone, and I said, man, I think I would struggle to write that check. And this person that I was talking to said, well, you know, I would struggle not to give it. And I said, why? Well, because God gave it to me. I, you, know, I'm, you know, we were imagining that someone was blessed and that they tithed. That's what we were assuming. And so I was saying, wow, that's a large amount of money. Um, and the other person was saying, yeah, but how do you not? Because didn't want to get in trouble with God, this person said. See, that's the battle that hits us all the time. And what I loved about this gift was it wasn't designated. You know, when people have large sums of money, they want to put it out there to certain places. But this person just gave it to the church to be used as could be used. And I pray that the Lord will bless them for that generosity. That touches my heart. Doesn't it yours? Several years ago, quite a few years ago, I had a discussion with a person from our church. I know the story. I'm just being careful to tell it in a right way. I don't like talking about money. (laughs) But this person said they don't give to the church, but they give to the Lord. And I said, well, that that doesn't make sense to me. What, What are you asking me? Well, this person said... I, I give to all these different missionaries, but I don't give to the church. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> that's between you and the Lord. But, let me, but I said, what are you asking me? Well, do you think that's right? I was hoping it's between you and the Lord would be good enough. Because <laughs> that's really what I believe. But they continued to press me. And I said, no, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's wrong, but I don't think it's what the Lord commanded us to do. Jesus said to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The point being is God established his church to take the kingdom of the world. And so this person asked me, Tim, what what would you do? I said, well, I'll tell you what we do, my wife and I. I said, we give to the church first. And we decide what we're going to give, and we give it to the church. And then, and then we give 
to missionaries as we can. We give to other ministries as we can. But I said, what would happen if everybody stopped giving to the church? We wouldn't have a church, and therefore we wouldn't have missionaries to support. I mean, everything goes down, and that's the way God established it to happen. And I said, do you realize that our church gives 12% of our budget to missionaries already? I'm not saying you shouldn't give to missionaries, I told this person. I didn't want to have this discussion, but they kept asking me. I said, listen, the reason I'm uncomfortable with talking to you about this is because of what 2 Corinthians 9-7 says. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I said, so I don't want to manipulate you to do something because I'm not God. It's between you and God. And I can tell you as an early believer, I didn't give cheerfully and it bugged me that I couldn't give cheerfully because I would see people that would give cheerfully and I'm like, why can't I do that? And I thought, of, and then I then finally found out that, I mean, where, where I came on this issue was I said, well, I can't give cheerfully, but I'm supposed to give, so I'm just going to give. And then I learned something. When you give to the Lord, the cheerfulness comes. And it makes you, and I want you to know that giving is not just about money. And I've learned, the Lord's taught me this, that when you give, It creates more of a desire to give. And then you want to give of your time and your talent. You want to do things for people. I'm inspired by my wife who gives me dirty looks when she's afraid I'm not. No, it wasn't a dirty look. (laughs) But she tells me, don't go off the script because that gets me into trouble. But I'm inspired by my wife because she's always looking for good things to do for people. She's got that gift. And I want to be like that too. Don't you? R. Kent Hughes, who I mentioned earlier in the sermon, he just, he's such a good, he's a pastor, by the way, and I just love what he writes. And this is what he writes, and I'll leave you with this. The true believer gives and serves to please God, not for the fleeting approval of man. Also, our lives are to be given to uncalculating generosity. See what I like about that? If you start calculating it, the generosity goes away. You know, because you're paying attention to it. Should be given to uncalculating generosity. And as we help others, we must guard our eyes from wandering from those we are helping to the observers. I want you to know I'm uncomfortable teaching about giving because. I do not want to be a pastor that manipulates the Scriptures to get you to do something. I will tell you the same thing that I told that person that I just talked about. And that is, giving's between you and the Lord. But I would encourage you, keep it between you and the Lord. Would you stand and let's pray together. Father, our desire is to be faithful to You. We struggle with that from time to time. Sometimes, Lord, we, we come up with reasons to do something or to not do something. We justify away our actions. But Lord, I would pray that 
you would help us to recognize when we do these things. And I pray, Father, that you would help all of us, me included, to continue to develop a heart of generosity, to give to your work, for your work is not like the applause of men that just goes away. Your work is for eternity. Help us with this, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.